it turned out, much to my annoyance, and also maybe for the, the sake of goodness as well, my parents got annoyed with me too, and they shipped me off and said, uh, okay, we've had enough. You're 16 and annoying as we could possibly imagine. And we've got these friends in California and they happen to be monks. And you can go and stay with them for three months for the summer. And uh, that was... That was a hard thing, but also a good thing. Hey guys, uh, just one note about this video today. It was a really good conversation. However, the internet connection was slightly choppy. And so you will notice occasionally that we are talking over each other or that um, we're having a bit of a challenge hearing one another. So bear that in mind, but it is definitely worth checking out. So hope that you enjoy it. Okay, welcome everyone to the Orthodox Christian Podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Gregory Gascoigne. And for those who are listening, or watching. Gregory, why don't you take a second to tell everyone who you are and what you spend your time doing? Um, well, that's my name. Um, I'm a ordained reader in the Orthodox Church um, by um, Archbishop Gregorius of Thyatira in Great Britain back in the day, many years ago in the 90s in Scotland when I was, I basically decided that this was something that to really um, dedicate my life to. Um, since then, I've had a multitude of various different jobs and so forth, and the, the underlying, underlying thread has generally been to attend um, church services as often as they occur, um, knowing that it will affect my life and change who I am as a person and allow me to see the world through my heart more than through just the, the, the ability of my um, in intellect. So. Um, I currently, due to various circumstances, glory to God, I am a um, stay-at-home father with six children and a hard-working wife who has just started basically second year, second year of a new job, which is also a new job because she's gone from teaching a particular a year to teaching another year and has to do all the prep work for that too. So that's, that's where we are. Um, and that's a very brief summary of of who I am now, if you like. Yeah. So quite busy with six children. And I know that uh, you grew up in the Orthodox Church, which is actually pretty unique in terms of the guests we've had so far. A lot of people have converted to Orthodoxy. So I'm keen to hear about your story and what it was like um, well, throughout the different periods goes, of your life. It probably goes back to my parents. Um, my parents were um, devout Christians of their own um, background. Um, my mother was was Church of England, although uh, um, she attended a um, a camp called Green Hedges, which which um, I may be misremembering the name, and and sort of grew an intimate relationship, spiritual relationship, a prayer life, if you like, um, that was very close to orthodoxy um, in her mid to late teens. Um, and my father, he was an Anglican chorister from the age of my six-year-old, uh, so it's sort of Pippi's age and up. And he sang the evening song every day throughout his entire school years. He would go to school, he'd finish school, he would go to church, and then he would go home. Um, so when his Anglican church decided 
after his vicar retired to get a new vicar in and with a new vicar, a new way of doing things, he was rather disillusioned and decided to sort of wander off and do uh, various other things. His brother um, decided that my father being gifted with languages should uh, come and see this smells and bells place he had found because he had Russian motorcycle friends. And my father stepped into a Russian Orthodox church for the first time and it was immediately at home. It had daily services at this particular church. Um, it had all of the taste of God that he had grown up expecting. Um, and so for him, it was it was like a, a duck finally finding a, a pond to swim on. I know how to do this. It's great, you know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a water bird and here's the water. Let's go. What else is there to learn? And, and I had to become you know, an orthodox, if you like. <laughs> uh, my mother met my father and uh, they were met married in three months um, because she believed that God had sent her someone and and uh, they got married and 10 kids later, here I am. So some of that ethos comes through, not to mention when I'm a teenager, I'm kind of going, well, is this really the thing? And, 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 and so on and so forth. And everything else I tasted was bland boring, um, had no depth. And so it was almost like I would look around, I'd visit friends, I'd even occasionally go to their services and there just wasn't, um, something for everything. There wasn't the smell connection. There wasn't the artist's connection. There wasn't the musical connection. There wasn't the sense of theater. Um, there wasn't the sets, set, the, the, the depth and the theology of the words you're listening to. Um, all of these things felt um, sort of a, a big step back. So I thought, well, and this kind of ties in with a friend of mine in Britain who was challenged by one of his Muslim friends who said, so you call yourself a Christian. Do you actually do it? Are you engaged in it? Is it something you actually grab and you're going to like do it properly? And I, and he, he mentioned this to me and I, at uh, an age where I was in my early 20s. And I thought, yeah, that's a really good point. Am I actually doing this to the best of my ability? And if I'm not doing it to the best of my ability, who am I kidding? If I do it to my best ability, what will be given me by grace to for my character, my abilities and so forth to be able to say, okay, all right, this is this is home. And not only do I know this is home, but there's going to be a perpetual journey and a depth that never to be plumbed hunting in the Orthodox church for that. In my case, as a musician, the perfect harmony, the perfect chant, the perfect combination of theology and music and, and words and, and everything coming together. And, and it's, it's, uh, well, the joke, the joke in the choir is, you know, it's an Orthodox service when <laughs> you keep making mistakes and you know it, um, it's never perfect. So it's uh, um, a, a never, it's like a never ending journey. Yeah. So did your parents grow up in more of a high Anglican church that was, or maybe even like uh, an Anglo Catholic church that was more my liturgical? My father, I would say was high Anglican. Yeah. Uh, okay. My mother, no, not so much. Um, in fact, the fact she's Christian at all is, is rather miraculous. I think that was her own heart journey because my grandparents were just kind of like well sunday's our day off you guys go to sunday school and church and we'll be at home having a cup of tea so so yeah so yeah there's the high anglican church on my father's side but not uh not on my mother's side um, okay 
And and tell us a little bit about um, the church that you're part of growing up. Was it um, in English at that time? Did they no. find an English speaking parish? No, I mean, the, the early English translations we had were um, Elizabeth Hapgood's translation, which I think was published by, I don't remember now, maybe Faber and Faber is the kind of a, um, uh, a text that would, you know, interest um, people studying that sort of thing. There was uh, Nassar, which I think is published by the Antiochian Archdiocese. Um, there was uh, an Octoecos and Paracliticae published in English by uh, Mother Elizabeth, who helped Bishop Callistos do the Festal Menaean and Lenten Triodion, which are kind of like the big major texts if you want to do any of the 12 feasts or you want to run from the beginning of Lent into Pascha, but there was no Pentecostarian. So it was kind of like, well, we've got all the texts in English get you to Pascha, the, the Feast of Feasts, Easter, if you want to use the, the, um, the Western term. Um, and so you were just picking pieces here and there and everywhere. So growing up, it was like, okay, so now we're at a Serbian church for a while and get a Russian church and then a Russian church and then a synod, synod Russian church. So it's like Moscow Patriarchate and then ex, um, expats Russian church and so on. And so for me, growing up in the Orthodox church was existentially non-English except when we were at home. And the only reason we did services at home is because, um, say, the car broke down or there was a, a skip in a Sunday service and my my father who'd run as a uh, sang first base for Father Michael Fortunato in London had learned many of the services in that position and was interested in how the services work, was able to kind of cobble together um, services that weren't perfect, but gave you a sort of a sense of, okay, well, this is what a Vespers should feel like. There's not the, you know, the evenings, the, the, the daylight tonight service is technically not the evening service, I guess, because that would be uh, in the dark, but Vespers is that kind of transition service. And, and it would have enough of a structure where if you went to a fully full um, fleshed out Vespers service, you'd be like, oh, this is Vespers, just with a whole lot more going on because we didn't have that in English and couldn't practice it at home. Um, which incidentally, yeah, it's, it's curious because we always did family services at home of some nature. Um, and it was partially built around a Vespers format. So um, sang all joyful light, which is the, 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 the middle song to that particular service. And it sort of transitions you now that we have seen the setting of the sun and beheld the evening light, we praise father, God, son, which is for me, I remember that from very early age as kind of a, oh yeah, and there's the sun setting in the in the window in the living room and and so on. So, so yeah, the the English part was was mostly a core underlying family thing, and then everything else we went to was majority not English until much later on. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And were there many other? Um... Anglo kids in those parishes, or was it mostly immigrants that were populating those parishes at the time in England? Um, in England, most of those parishes would have been um, refugees. Um, so their children would have been encouraged to be English. And unfortunately what that meant in, in, in a few cases was that they would encourage their children to go to the Anglican church so they become English. 
And so people of my generation just weren't there from these um, immigrant families. Um, I'd turn up and there's nobody my age. We dropped the average age of the church by probably 50 years, just being stepping into the building. Everybody else had white hairs. So got really good at talking to really old people who had maybe some English, no English at all, because you'd be a child and you'd understand from the interaction where they were in their heart. And, um, and uh, yeah, even to this day, I feel very comfortable talking to people a lot older than myself. <laughs> Just feels normal, you know, because that's what I grew up with. Yeah, no kids, no kids my age. So I went to Greek Orthodox Youth Camp in Great Britain as, uh, I guess you call them counselors here, you know, the volunteer, um, to discover there were pockets of people my age and they all had a similar experience. They were like, wait, where did you come from? We didn't know you existed. And so it was, uh, between the counselors, it was a kind of like spider network of, okay, now you're related to oh, actually, oh, and you know this person. And so you suddenly realize that orthodoxy was an incredibly small world. And the converts, which were our parents, was an even smaller world. And we, as the, the I guess, the, the offspring of that enthusiasm, um, which kind of mostly started with Metropolitan Antony and um, in, in, in sort of a major way, not that the other um, jurisdictions didn't have their own version. It was like sort of an ink on a, on a map and it's sort of like blotting paper and just sort of blip, blip, blip. And all of a sudden there's this kind of spreading out and everybody was suddenly involved and somebody knew somebody, even if they weren't Orthodox, it was like, oh, I actually know what that is. Rather than when my parents were growing up, they're like, Orthodox, what, are you Jewish? <laughs> uh, no. Right. <laughs> oh, so you must be Russian. No, we're English. Oh, you must be. No, we're not. Um, my my wife, she is blonde, blue eyes, and even her experience at a monastery in England was was. Are you Orthodox? She's like yes. <laughs> um, and then her experience with that in Germany was they they talked to her in French. They thought she was French. If you blonde, blue eyes, you must be French if you're Orthodox. So it's funny, you get these sort of cultural, cultural things. And uh, anyway, I lost track of the question now because I went down too many rabbit holes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. So, so too, tell too us a little bit. stories to tell. It's hard to pick through them all. It's like, oh. So, I mean, in that, that childhood period, I mean, maybe until you're about 12 or so, was that a strange sort of experience or was it just what you knew and so that you didn't know any different and, and and it was fine how would you describe it uh it wasn't a strange experience it was just kind of funny singing because i was a chorister too like my father singing languages i had no idea what i was singing so i could sing liturgy and slavonic and I have a rough idea, but you asked me what those words meant. I'd be like, mm -hmm. wasn't until I was in my late teens. I was like, oh, that's the text that goes with that. That's what we're singing about. Huh? So yeah, it's, it, it's kind of, I didn't know any better, but it's, in hindsight, it was must, it could have been strange, but it wasn't strange because it's always God filled. So where there's grace, it, there is no strangeness. You've got truth, you've got beauty, you've got goodness. They're all happening at the same time. Do you have to understand it? 
intellectually. Hey, my experience has been, no, you don't. You know it in your heart. You can walk into a liturgy meeting, it's spellbindingly beautiful and just have your eyes well with tears because it's, it affects the, it affects your nervous system, it goes right into the core of your being. Um, and it doesn't have to be in the English language for that beauty to kind of impact you in a deeply meaningful way. And there's, yeah, count, uh, let's say there's countless moments because I'm not capable of noticing all the moments, but there are a fair few moments where I could tell stories of that, that magnitude, that sort of impact. Um, and they date from way back. Yeah. So yeah, mm -hmm. from, from the 12 and under, the English language was at home. We were encouraged to do uh, our own prayers before receiving communion. We were encouraged to bless our beds, but that was about it. Otherwise the majority of the prayer was in an icon corner, um, like a prayer corner, you just have a little desk or whatever you want and you've got your a few icons of the saints normally ones that are patrons of people in the family if not ones that the family has loved and you gather there every day um and you're you're effectively continuing that beauty that you found at the general church which wasn't in english but now you were also expressing it in your own language so i guess maybe there was a translation there um, so if there was any awkwardness, it's probably in that translation, but I don't remember it feeling that way. Hmm. Uh, and, and do you feel that you were able to appreciate the liturgy in a different language, partially because you had a strong faith at home where you were able to understand the words that were being said and able to engage with it on that level so that it supplemented the experience of going and worshiping at the church well no not really it was sort of a continuation of the beauty i don't really pay attention to <laughs> the words other than the ones i had to memorize you know and then it, it wasn't until later on that i had left home um in my late teens that i was struck in some cases by the phrases that were being used and and how if you actually tried to mean them they they were, they would, they would open you up in a way that I had not anticipated. So it was just very, very much a, a sort of a baptism of osmosis, just fabulous amounts of beautiful music, incredible artwork, amazing liturgical stuff. Um, although <laughs> there is one parish my parents stopped going to because we can. <laughs> We went to Pascha and they sang the Christ is risen in such a way that when we imitated it as children, my parents are like, no, we can't go there again because it's too much. So, um, yeah, there, there were a, a few hiccups along the way that, uh, get talked about, but I don't, I don't remember the occasion. I just remember the story. Yeah. Hmm. And so going on from that period um, to sort of the middle years when you're a teenager and maybe a, a young man, what did uh, your faith look like at that time? Um, 
I felt compelled somewhat in my early teens. It's like, this is what we have to do as a family. This is what we're doing, going to church. Um, I'd been an altar server, continued to be, and I wasn't sure if there was kind of a bit of a magic kind of thing, kind of temptation to think of it as magic. And, um, and that's when I started sort of exploring, okay, what's this guy at school do? Oh, he doesn't do anything. Oh, that's boring. What does this guy either do? Oh, he's, you know, Baptist. What does that actually mean? Oh, he kind of half does the Orthodox thing. Okay. And this other guy, you know, he's Anabaptist. What the heck is the difference between those two people, you know, um, and, and so on. And so, so I was sort of had a, a, an argument, I guess, in myself as to the reality of the situation. And, and it turned out much to my annoyance and also maybe for the, the sake of goodness as well. And my parents got annoyed with me too, and they shipped me off and said, uh, okay, we've had enough year 16 and annoying as we could possibly imagine. And we've got these friends in California and they happen to be monks. And you can go and stay with them for three months for the summer. And uh, that was that was a hard thing, but also a good thing, right? Because I learned there that that much of the radio of thoughts going on inside my head were just literally that. It's just a radio. You could turn it off if you had to. There was ways to do that, prayer to do that. Um, I started to appreciate the Jesus prayer, which is a very short prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, and God have mercy on me. And there's a little um, prayer rope that comes with that. And that kind of focus that makes you go, okay, what am I, I actually thinking? Or what am I allowing to take place in my mind? In other words, things are kind of dancing in, dancing out. I don't need to participate. I can step aside. Who am I? What is my purpose? Uh, these kinds of questions. Um, and so it was a very informative, very short time, which um, made me realize that there was external influences that were other than worldly. And that for, um, as St. Nikolai Milovirovich talks about you're not just given a guardian, but you're also given <laughs> like it's that cartoon thing. You've got an angel on one side, and you've got the devil on the other side, and it 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 exists, and it was a reality I hadn't appreciated. Um, and my time at, in that sort of question time was very providential that I got sent to this monastery. Um, it was many many years later that I actually appreciated that that had taken place in my life. I was very annoyed for a long time that I had been subjected to this. And uh, yeah, but to this day, I, I still draw on that occasionally, you know, if things are getting a little wacky, a little crazy, a little out of control. Okay. What's the basics? The basics are go back to prayer. If you can go back to prayer, you can find who I can find who I am and know how broken that is and offer it back to Christ. And then after that, it's time to go to confession and all these other things that, that are sacraments of the church that help that whole, that whole process. So that was the, that was mm. the mid teen years, not long after that late teen years. So I'm about 
17 and a half, 18, I actually decided to go to the same monastery and become a novice. I wasn't allowed to become a novice because of my age, so that I was given a blessing to wear um, Riasa and and try that lifestyle. Um, and oh, <laughs> that's intense. They, they talk about monasticism as being, you know, kind of like being an athlete and so forth. And I had done some cross country running at that point and knew kind of an idea of what the mindset meant for endurance kind of sports and so forth. And well, let's say I'm married with six kids now, so I decided not to do, not to take that as the uh, the primary focus of my life. Um, and that takes me up to probably 18 or 19 at that point, whereupon uh, my parents moved home. They were in the States at that point, um, and I moved back to England and started my own life. Um, and incidentally, ended up with one of the families they knew from 20 years ago and lodged with them while I kind of found my feet under me. And they and I traveled to church every weekend. Um, a wonderful family. Um, not in touch with them right now, regretfully, but I should probably look them up. And uh, I went to a, a new calendar church for the first time. Um, and it was a little parish in Bath in Somerset and discovered a new aspect or a new way of um, exploring the faith. It was a very family-based church. There was, um, I guess, about eight core families. Um, I was probably the eldest of the young people and there were 25 people younger than me. It was quite the experience. They had a veritable dog pile of shenanigans at every agape with that many small people in what was basically a two room basement space for that kind of effect. Um, and the, then the two room church upstairs, because it was in a house effectively and the row home, um, for Canadians who need to kind of picture that. Uh, and then the, the priest and his wife lived in the, the top floor and it was small. It was, everybody knew everybody. Um, and there was a, there was a something in that agape in that community that I had never felt before. And so, um, again, it's always in, always in hindsight, always at the time, never kind of fully appreciative, never quite got my eyes open for the grace that's surrounding me at every moment to look at back and be like, okay, that is how families should live. That is how families who know how to live come to other families who know how to live and just do it. It was, it was spectacular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so and it. for right. people that may not be familiar with um, new calendar versus old calendar, maybe just give a brief definition of that as well as um, oh, the agape okay. meal. Yeah, so and we've, got, we've got, uh, I guess, church calendar, new calendar. We've got um, Pope Gregory, who's gone. It's just a bit off. We need to adjust everything. And, uh, and we need to adjust it by 13 days. So we're going to do that. And then a, a large part of the Orthodox world who was not kind of in on the um, memo, should we say, kind of trickled on, continuing to do. In fact, the largest portion of Orthodox Christians in the world are still on the Julian calendar, which predates the Gregorian calendar. Um, then a no nice little note, well, there's two, two notes for that, which I always find funny, is that America was the last country in the world to stop using the Julian calendar, and that was in the 1800s. 
Um, and that, oh no, three tidbits. The second one is that the tax year in Britain, they didn't want to lose 13 days in taxes. And it was based around the Marian calendar. So March the 25th was the end of your tax year. Well, now it's April what? Because they didn't want to use 13 days of tax. And it means it's, it's this to this day. Um, and then the, the last one was, uh, was um, the Russian patriarchy had all of the new calendars printed, published, ready to go. And then the revolution happened. They never got shipped. Why? Interesting. Moscow patriarchate is old calendar or church calendar, depending on who you talk to, to this day. Yeah. So it's just, it's just man counting time, um, and allocating, I guess, saints days. So it's, it's like, a it's a way of glorifying God by trying to sanctify time days, if you like. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, the, the, the feast of Pascha, the Orthodox Easter is always calculated using the Julian calendar, um, whereas the calendar of saints is off. So you could call it a revised Julian calendar, um, where you've got Christmas on the, what feels like December the 25th. It's still December the 25th, but now January the 6th, uh, 6th, 7th. Um, sorry, my math is off. I haven't done this in a while. Uh, and so, yeah, got discrepancies like that. Funny one, oh, another one that got noted was at St. Herman of Alaska, because his saint day was after the churches had two different calendars, incidentally, always falls at the same time, although it's two different dates. So his feast day is 13 days apart, but as a result, lands on the, on the, same, the same time. So everyone celebrates his feast day on the same actual day. Yeah. Uh, so, oh, yeah. Interesting. Anyway, and then the the yeah yeah I've I've often understood it. I, I like all those fascinating tip, tidbits that you added. That um, essentially well, the Julian calendar messing about with yeah. it. It's like, okay, we don't need to get our knickers in a twist. We just oh, else we want to do. You go ahead. It's it's fine. We'll figure it out in another hundred five hundred years. I don't know. You know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's hard too because these theological aspects get mixed in with it in the sense that the Julian calendar, from a purely mathematical standpoint, was inaccurate. Like it was slowly uh, falling behind. Oh, it behind. still is. And the I Gregorian think in another has to 20 years, introduce it the leap year. another day behind. Yes. Something like exactly. that. Exactly. So, huh, yeah. okay. That's what you want to do. <laughs> um, and, and as I said, I'm not, uh, not in this conversation but to you personally that i'm not the not the theologian so i don't get the nuances with the argument why you do otherwise but i have found that people who do try and work with the original julian calendar tend to be um more cognizant of tradition whereas people who have kind of sailed into the revised julian the new calendar um are often not aware of certain traditions and when they are they do become aware of them kind of it it almost feels like they look down on it um but we don't need that anymore it's just kind of a general feel that comes with and that i don't think that's necessarily kind to the, anyone receiving it let alone the person giving it because it just doesn't create a, a good atmosphere for conversation so yeah
Mm-hmm. And also just another definition to throw in there, you mentioned the agape meal. And so that's just after the actual formal liturgy, oftentimes at Orthodox yeah, it's, it's churches, like people will gather. It's a paraliturgical, liturgical, uh, yeah, the paraliturgical action whereby you share food and camaraderie and um, some people say that coffee is the next sacrament <laughs> for those who are very caffeine dependent. <laughs> um, and and in a he- in my experience, in a healthy parish, um, one should think of that as mandatory. It is a continuation of your liturgical life. It is an expression of the love that you've now received from God through Holy Communion to then take that time introvert or extrovert or otherwise and get in there and just be like i don't know who i'm talking to today but if i don't give my best i might not find out what that special story or whatever it might or should have been right be able to receive that extra grace yeah yes yeah yeah that's a that's a lovely way to put it so i'm really curious about this time that you spent at the monastery could you walk us through a day in the life of that uh yeah um well you got given a prayer rule so and you were to have completed that um each day um sometimes that was specific to the time of day so 4 30 in the morning you'd be up doing your morning prayers which in this particular monastery was a form of midnight office um i thank you lord that's not destroy me my iniquity but it's shown that usual want and love for man <laughs> have raised me from bed you know this kind of stuff um, and then we wandered over for, for orthros or matins, depending on which flavor of labeling you prefer. Um, after matins, there was the, uh, I think about an hour. And then, uh, then you'd have, um, breakfast in the refectories. So the refectory is like the, 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 the common place where all the food is shared. Um, there is no food normally outside of this, this particular room. Um, and then after that, you've got your various, um, things to do, gardening, cleaning, building, and so on. Um, you'd nip back into, uh, depending on the day, I oh, sorry, so it, yeah, let's not get into that. Just regular day, lunch, quiet time, contemplation, um, reading of uh, Psalms, gospels. In my case, I was, I was devouring lives of saints. That seemed to be fantastic. Um. It's because it's, it's, it's long, it's very, for me, it was along the lines of fairy tales that were true. <laughs> like this is a fantastic story, but it was real. Okay. Love that. Um, and then, uh, afternoon try and gather and, 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 and take a walk or, or just be cup of tea, cup of coffee, that kind of thing. Then you've got Vespers at three o'clock, um, after Vespers, the evening meal after the evening meal. Um, you do Compline, um, and that would, that would basically finish it up at around nine o'clock and you'd be back again at four, four thirty, just sort of picking up, picking up prayer again. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it a punctuated by moments of prayer and contemplation. And those were the things to aim for. Everything else was just a means to maintain that, um, that aspect of, of of existence um, in these fight that is the spiritual fight where you are really weeding the garden of your heart 
<laughs> seriously weeding the garden of your heart. Yeah. Yeah. So you were a novice at this monastery. Uh, that's not where you ended up. Can you um, give us a summary of there? I mean, this is quite probably a leap, but if you're able to do a summary of from that point to uh, where you currently are and what, what transpired in that period. Okay, so I uh, left the monastery um, not long after I left the United States, went back to England, uh, stayed with that family I mentioned earlier, discovered that fabulous parish in Bath. Incidentally, I met a chap there who had a rental apartment in Edinburgh. I applied for three different colleges for um, orchestral instrument making or repair. Um, the only one that was within a short enough dis distance I could cycle or walk was um, near this flat in Edinburgh. So I talked to this guy, if I was a student, can I rent this flat? Yes. So I end up in Edinburgh. Um, there is, um, Archimandra Maitland Moyer of blessed memory, Archimandrite. So he's basically a priest monk, elevated priest monk. He was Scottish. He trained in Mount Athos. He was sent back to run a chaplaincy and also to teach theology at the Edinburgh university. Um, he was he was the the prime presbyter at this particular chapel of St Andrew, um, dedicated to St Andrew. The church is still there. Different. So I think they're on their third building now. Um, community has grown substantially. Um, it was left over from uh, a Polish immigrants who escaped um, nastiness in. First and Second World War. Um, and it had sort of come under the ecumenical patriarchate, and so it had sort of attracted a large Greek community. It was at that point that I made the decision to go to a college that was near a church, and I discovered it was daily services. I was not hardcore, I did not go to matins. I'd had my matins experience. I was like, that's a bit much. I'm not, uh, not well, I could, but. Mm. <laughs> So I did Vespers every day. I'd get up, I'd go to work, I'd finish work, I'd ride my bike, 20 minutes, I'd go to Vespers, pick up some supper, go home. That was my routine. Um, and that work was either college or in the summertime, catering, um, whatever I could lend my hands to. And, and it was at that church that uh, um, Rhiannon turned up because I had Canadian friends who had become Orthodox through a parish in the Lower Mainland. Um, and the the wife of the couple had some obscure medieval literature thing she wanted to study. And uh, the husband was very capable of turning his hand to anything. So they moved to Scotland so she could do this and he got a job doing whatever. And I got to know them and they knew my wife's family. Um, and so they basically set us up. And uh, my wife has cousins in London and other space places, but they were not really leading a Christian life of any imaginable description. So this was not really suited to her upbringing. Um, so she and I fell in step in Edinburgh, got married. And because I'd done a lot of moving anyway, and she suggested, why don't we move back to Canada? Voila, we're here in Canada. We have six beautiful children, 16 down to four. And um, through turns of 
God's grace, I now know you, and we are at Holy Nativity in, in Langley, so, yeah. That was a lovely I'm whirlwind summary. <laughs> Each time I feel honest a bit. So, uh, th throughout these different periods that you're part of the Orthodox Church, it sounds like you're, you're quite involved at every stage, um, quite intrigued by it or interested in spending a lot of time in learn. the church. There was always something more to learn. There was always something just around the corner. You're like, wait, I missed I miss that? Oh, okay. Turn a page in a book. Oh, look at that poetry. How do you sing that? Oh, is there music goes with that? Oh, no, there isn't. Well, there is, but that's too much for me. Okay, I'll let, I'll let Nikos over here do his thing or whatever, you know. Um, and it was always like, well, I can't learn everything, but I'm sure I'm going to try. So I tried. Greek style music, and I tried reading Newms, and I was rubbish at that. I didn't have the patience for it. And then, you know, Paracrisis would come along, which is a beautiful service, actually, for this time of the year. Uh, as, incidentally, that's how I got stuck singing at the parish in St. Andrew, because I turned up, they were singing Paracrisis, and I sang the East song correctly. So they turned around Greek style and was like, and here's the book, you sing the next verse. And I'm like, okay because if someone in the orthodox church says and now you do this you do it because you have to be obedient <laughs> and if you make a terrible sh sham of it you never have to do it again and you are very humbled <laughs> i didn't make a massive sham of it clearly because they asked me to think another verse a couple of pages later and i was like okay and then after that they were like okay now you're singing so it's like ah, okay so that was an interesting parish because it was greek Greek um, words, Greek music, English words, Greek music, Russian words, Russian music, and then English words, Russian music. And within uh, a short time, they decided I could be a choir director, whatever that meant at the time, because I had very, very poor experience and yeah, built it from there. It was, it was, it was magical to discover that you can be enthusiastic, enthusiastic about something within orthodoxy, and it's a never-ending well of delight. Never, mm -hmm. never ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. So, um, switching gears slightly, throughout these different periods, were there certain challenges you faced in being part of the Orthodox Church that you had to wrestle through and overcome? Uh, yeah, you had. Um, uh, people who would turn up only for certain feasts and then assume that they were doing all the things. And it was like, mm, okay. And you want to sing it antiphonally? No, they want to sing it all in whatever their native language is because that's whatever they've done. So there was challenges whereby you're like, well, hang on, this choir has been practicing this, that small choir, I've been practicing it for months to get it right. And now you're just going to railroad us. That was a bit of a bit of a chore. Um, the uh, the parish uh, various parishes would suddenly swell with numbers at, at uh, Easter, which we call Pascha, um, and sometimes that meant that there was some friction because you get two different ethnic groups that maybe didn't uh, were kind of like uh, had some feuding back in the old country, little moments like that. Um, trying to lead an orthodox life in a in a wild university city city is 
filled with temptations. It was like, oh man, yeah. Skip, skip clubs. Don't do that. It's not that. It's not. You don't come away with any truly earth-shattering things to say, and uh, and you only have to go and confess drunkenness yet again. You know, it's like, huh, great. Don't, yeah. So there's many, many pitfalls, but I don't think I want to go through all the dungeons of my heart at this time. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, there are, uh, well, actually, before I get to that question, there's a lot of other options on the table in Western culture in terms of how to lead your life, evidently. Orthodoxy is oh. a vast minority. And so yeah. if you could summarize the reasons why you've remained Orthodox, I think that'd be really fascinating. Uh, versus the temptations of the world to be an experience, whatever it might be. Okay. Um, or even a different sort the of people Christian. I've like met have lost themselves. The, the people I've met who have engaged in certain kinds of activity do not knew, know who they are anymore. Um, and I've seen that demise in, say, two or three years at university where someone I met I thought was had a pretty good core turned out to be um, something that even they thought was apparent prior to their ex uh, um, experiential um, garnishing along the way. Um, I don't know if I was just given the grace to be aware of that because I was actively trying to pray um, and pray regularly and be useful at church um, and do things that were asked of me. Um, but it, 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 it was apparent there were certain times of the year where you just wanted to keep your head down. Like the first freshers week was a good time to not be out. There were a lot of enthusiastic people who had just left home for the first time who were, um, overly excited and were very willing to involve themselves in, uh, anyone they could get their hands on. Um, it was, it was pretty wild. Um, I found that there were enough in the lives of the saints, which I had read, not just at the monastery, but prior to that, um, that the saints are interesting because they're not all saints straight from the get-go, right? They're disasters that realized they were disasters, took their brokenness, repented for it, offered their tears, sometimes over decades, to the Lord, who then, um, we only know that they were forgiven and glorified because they were producing um, science-shattering results, like turn up and they know your name. Um, they are able to recite chunks of the service and they've never read a service book. They already know how to speak as if they were the quoting the Old Testament and, and so on and so forth. So if I was wandering around and, and, and these kinds of things are going on around me, it was kind of like, I don't have to, I don't have to let that in. I don't have to be tempted by it. 
in a way. Um, and it's, I guess, yeah, you, you have to arm yourself. You have to actually arm yourself with prayer. You have to th be thinking about, okay, no, I, I missed a beat there. Okay, now what do I get back on track? Oh, yeah, Lord Jesus Christ, I've got a mercy on me. See something, say, Lord of mercy. You know, is there a beggar on the street? Lord of mercy. Say goodbye to people. I love this one because in the English language, we can get away with all kinds of things because it's old English. Nobody knows what goodbye means. Do you? What does goodbye mean? Uh, I, not the etymology of it. No, go ahead. Okay, well, it actually means God be with you. Hmm. That's the, and it's old English for God be with you. So every time you say, don't say ta-da, say goodbye. And what you don't know, what they don't know is that you just bless them. Right? And so if you take moments like this, and you're like, okay, oh, that's terrible. Instead of saying, oh, that's terrible, say, Lord of mercy, because not through me, through them, right? Um, and if you're uh, bothering to, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, and I just read recently with um, Elder Paisius, maybe this is what I was doing, I don't know. But Elder Paisius says, you don't pray for other people if you don't, if you're already broken, if you can say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, and Christ has mercy on you, everyone you're connected to will be affected. That's all you need to do. It ties directly in with St. Seraphim Sarov, who is the Russian mystic, who says, save yourself and thousands around you will be saved. So I don't think I was doing that, but I think maybe the people were praying for me um, and uh, allowing whatever conscience I had to be pricked enough to me to say, okay, no, I need to pray a bit more and stay away from, stay away from these the certain kinds of ways of living that are effectively soul destroying, body destroying. And, and in some cases, in some cases of my friends was also mind destroying. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So. Uh, again, shifting gears, we do have a number of people listening that are interested in orthodoxy. They're in a stage where they're investigating it. Yeah. And what would be your advice to someone like that? Come and see. Um, I've not met anybody that came to a liturgy with their heart open who wasn't affected. I've met people in in my in my life who are 30 years but when they buy, buy it took them 30 years to become orthodox but 30 years prior to that they went to their first liturgy if you're looking for the truth it doesn't mean it's overnight it doesn't mean it's going to be quick but everyone has their own speed on finger on the speed dial they know how fast their conversion is going to be it's not a conversion either it's you becoming uh, Christ touched and accepting that the Theotokos is also your primary intercessor um, and that the saints are there to help. So, yeah, liturgy, come to liturgy and you'll, and you'll be touched. And mm. don't worry about the time, just be open. 
be affected by the beauty and the truth and the goodness. Yeah. And would you recommend a particular liturgy for people that are new to attend? Um, God generally takes care of that. Um, in my mother's case, she's an artist. And she met my father because she had a mutual friend. Didn't know my father at the time, but this other friend of hers did, who said, oh, you're studying um, this sort of Eastern painting style. Well, he's got some on his wall that we can go over and see him and have a look at them. They're, you know, they're painted originals kind of thing. I don't know what year there are or if there's an archaeological find or whatever. And so her journey was through art. So when she stepped into um, All Saints in the Theotokos Cathedral in London, which is the uh, one of the Russian-speaking cathedrals there, she was very much struck by the art form, um, which, of course, leads into the people and how they dress and what they do and so forth. Um, in my, my father's case, he could have been an opera singer. Um, and he chose not to do that because it was an involving life that would would uh, allow his ego to outgrow everything else. And he recognized that as a danger somehow, was given that as an opportunity to recognize that. Um, and so for him, music was a really good bridge into orthodoxy. Um, and I've met many Western musicians who have an appreciation for Russian Orthodox music. Um, because it has many of the composers in the certainly 1800s and onwards up to the present day would be um, considered classical Italian-based kind of stuff. Um, this is a fantastic tool to kind of worm your way down to some of the Znanami chant and then realize that the Znanami chant and some of these other things are actually related to the early Byzantine chant and they've kind of grown into their own own trees, and then you've got um, the four-part harmony coming in much, much later. So there's that. Um, I would hazard a guess that, you know, for having talked to some of the people that, I guess, who are went to Columbia Bible College that I've met, um, theology was a, was a way in, right? Who are, the, who are these ancient church fathers? Who is St. Athanasius? Keep talking about this guy. I'll go and research on it okay that was their that was their way in you know it's like a it's like um uh c.s lewis has it perfect but he says you didn't you never know when the door to narnia is going to be there well you have to find your door there it is boom you're in and it'll be unique to each each person which i i think is fascinating that 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 uniqueness is 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 there every time. Well, that seems like a wonderful place for us to conclude the conversation today, uh, Gregory. So I want to thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Forgive me if I've been unedifying in any particular way. Um, I'm sure you can edit it out. <laughs> Hey guys, thanks for watching that episode of the Orthodox Christian Podcast. If you enjoyed that episode, please send it to one friend or family member. It really helps to grow the channel and to also 
hopefully benefit some other people that might not know about Orthodox Christianity. And there's also a link to a Google form in the video description. And if you have a question about Orthodox Christianity, you can submit it there. Hope that you guys all have a peaceful week. Take care.